You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not in your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. It was about the space of three hours after that when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in, Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door and shall carry you out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghosts. And the young men came in, found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So here we have the scene. The church is young vibrant, uh, growing. They have been persecuted. The apostles have been threatened. They've been thrown in jail. They've been beaten. But this community of people is loving. They're one. They're in unity. Even to the point where what is happening is many of them who have possessions, estates, who own a lot, when they come to know Christ, they see other believers who don't have those things. And it seems like when a need is brought up, somebody who owned a lot would sell what they had to have money to then give it to those who are in need, to help them with their problem. That would filter apparently through the apostles. And Barnabas, just before this in chapter 4, comes and does a unique thing where he sells everything he has, not just a part of it. He sells everything and just lays it at the apostles' feet. So when we come to verse 1, where it says again, but, this is in contrast to what is happening there. It says, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession as well, as had been happening, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy, she was involved in it, she knew what was happening, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is all in contrast to what Barnabas had done and what was happening in the church. Now, I think it's important to note, first of all, this is... Satan is attacking the church, which he has always done. This is the first picture of sin from within the church. We had pictures of sin outside of the church, persecution coming outwardly. This is our first picture of sin in the church. And I think it's important to note, notice God deals with sin in the church different than he deals with sin outside of the church. That's important to see. We'll get back to that in a little Some would call this the Achan of the New Testament. 
But I think it's important to note as well, this early church, they weren't perfect. Again, some people have a problem. They think the church presents itself as perfect. The Bible is so honest. Here's the early church. It is not perfect. Notice, these things, you would think if there was a time in church history where things were perfect, it would be now. But here's a person doing this, this sin, Ananias and Sapphira. They might have been a part of Pentecost. They're seeing miracles and these amazing things happening, and they're literally standing in front of the Apostle Peter. Right? You would think if, if there's a place in time and history where people would be honest about their Christianity, it would have been right now. That's not the case. This is not a perfect scenario, just like the church is not perfect today, and just like Satan's going to have his scandals, and he's going to be working even today to get at the church in whatever ways that he can. But we don't have to be discouraged. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is going to prevail. What drove them to this, we don't know. It tells us that they agreed together to bring a part of it. It seemed like they had agreed already to sell everything they have and bring it, but they get together and they decide, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something else. We're going to sell, and then we're going to keep part of the money, and we're going to bring the other part of the money. Why? A lot of people have a lot of guesses as to why. What are they trying to do? Are they trying to earn position? Are they trying to just look like Barnabas? Who knows? Maybe they just started feeling pressure, right? Maybe, maybe Ananias still drove a Lexus and like everybody else sold their Lexus and were rolling in Hyundais. And uh, they were like, what's up with you, right? Why you still got a Lexus? Who knows? We don't, we don't know why. Like sin is complex, we don't know the motive, and it's probably a mixed motive, as to why they decided this was what they were going to do. All we know is they enacted this lie. You see, they actually say very little. There's very little words coming out. But they live this. They act in a way that is hypocritical here. They're, this was wrong. And no, no little good that they were doing could overcome the evil motive behind it, right? No, just because they were giving some money to the apostles. Notice, you wouldn't look at this act as something that was extremely wicked just on the outside. Just like if you were an outsider and you saw Judas kiss Jesus, you wouldn't have thought him as extremely wicked. But it was the motive. It was the heart. It was the intention. It was what was being presented there in that moment that was the real problem. And there is a real hypocrisy that's happening here. Again, that is one of the constant judgments that are brought against the church. I would say being a sinner and a hypocrite are not exactly the same thing. We can all be sinners and not be hypocritical because we can confess our sin. Right? We can admit that we're sinners. Being a sinner and admitting that you're a sinner, calling your sin sin is not being hypocritical. That's being honest and being sincere. The problem here is they're reaching for both worlds here. They're pretending something that they're not. They are putting something forward that's synthetic, okay? This is the problem with them. Uh, in some ways, I will admit, it is uh, easier to be a hypocrite in the church because we're not what we used to be. Right? We actually have been made something else. We are new creations in him. We're new people. 
Now, the problem is we don't want to embellish those things. And I think for many of us, our greater danger is actually being a hypocrite in the opposite sense, where instead of creating like a synthetic love, we actually restrain the real love that we do have, right? We're a hypocrite by not being as loving. We want to talk about Christ, but we don't. We want to worship him, but we don't because we're afraid of what people think. We want to say something, but we don't because, right, we're, we're nervous. We're, we're a hypocrite in restraining our love instead of giving it. Here, in this scene, this is something different. They're putting forward something synthetic. They're trying to have both worlds. I want all the church, and I want the world. I want my money, and I want God. But we know you can't serve two masters. Things don't work like that for them. And they don't work like that, particularly before God here. So, look as it goes on. Peter is going to point out the issue here. Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? He didn't have to sell it. It was not forced upon them. After it was sold, was it not in your own power? He didn't have to give it. He could have sold the land and kept all the money. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men. This is the key, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. Notice, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. This clear, premeditated attempt to appear like something they were not had an issue. The main issue was this that Peter points out. You're not lying to men. You're lying to God. Ananias forgot that he was dealing with God, not men. He should have known better. He should have known better. Sin, first and foremost, is always against God. It is very important for us to remember why we are here. When we come on a Sunday morning, who are we coming to worship? Who are we coming to deal with? Who are we coming to interact with? It's God. Famous old preacher used to say, it's a very serious thing to say you believe in God. We're not here to fool men. Who, who cares if he could trick Peter? Who cares if he could trick all the apostles? Who cares if you can lie to all the church and nobody knows the difference? I'm not here to worship Peter. I'm not here to worship men. I'm here to worship God. I have to do with him. And Ananias forgot God knows the truth. God's not tricked. God's not being uh, duped here. He's, he doesn't think of Ananias more than he should, and he couldn't possibly do that. This is God in the scene that he's dealing with. And it is very important for us to not make this mistake that Ananias is making and forget who it, what, who it is that we're coming to interact with, especially now. Listen, the final environment for every soul is God, right? That's where we're all going. We're all going to stand before him. And we're going to stand before him open and naked, right, with whom we have to do. He knows everything about us. Hell and destruction are before the eyes of the Lord. How much more are the hearts of the children of men? And it's very important that we don't forget, because we can trick men who we're really interacting with. And the act that then happens when Peter points this out, it says in 5, Ananias falls down dead. This is an act of God. This isn't Peter. Peter didn't kill Ananias. He doesn't have that ability. Ananias wasn't so shocked that he fell over dead. 
And it doesn't happen to his wife either. They, did, they both didn't die of shock right here. This was an act of God. And frankly, I think Peter might have been just as shocked as we were, right? Peter points out his sin. He's like, oh, you're lying to God right here. And then he drops dead. I think Peter's like, oh, right? I don't think, I don't think he thought this is going to happen here. I don't think that was certainly Peter's intention. I think they were all shocked, and it seems as if they were. It says that great fear came upon all of them. They're, they can't believe what's happening in this scene. And I think it's very important for us here. This reveals something about the God we serve. This is not like a different God. This is our God. In his body, in the church, interacting there. And it is so important that we don't misconstrue the real character of God by thinking of it wrongly. We can so easily just grab certain scriptures and then assume like this is who God is because there are things that we like and then ignore the other things, right? People can very easily just say, you know, people throw stuff out all the time. Oh, God is loving. God will take care of everybody. God won't send anybody to hell. Listen to what Jesus says. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Jesus says this in Mark. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. It's pretty straightforward from Jesus. Wow, well, Jesus wants peace. He wants happiness. He doesn't want problems or issues in our family. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. Suppose you, I am come to give peace to the earth. I tell you no, but rather division. From henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The favorite, the one that people always love, Jesus said we shouldn't judge, right? Being judgmental, judge not lest you be judged. Jesus also says in John, don't judge according to her appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Jesus commands us not to judge. Jesus commands us to judge. Well, how does that work? Well, there's a way to judge correctly, and there's a way to judge incorrectly. And my point is this. That, that is not all Jesus is. That is a part of who Jesus is. So the problem is we take one thing that we like, right? These other verses that I read, they're generally not memory verses, right? You don't see them on plaques places. Why? Because people, they're not like the happiest thing. And, and people, they're hard for people to worry. Well, what does that mean? How does that, how does that work? Well, it's really important for us to think rightly about God. This is who he is. He doesn't only say, don't judge. He doesn't only say there will be peace in families. He doesn't only say that everybody's going to go to heaven. He never says that, actually. So, right? You get my point, though. That's one side of the coin. And we can't pick and choose the things that we like about God and say, I'm going to roll with this side of the coin. This is the way God is. Read the scriptures. Get in the word. Look at what he says. Don't even, you don't have to trust me right now, but I'm not afraid of a person who opens their Bible, says, Holy Spirit, teach me who you really are, and reads through the Gospels and to see who God is as revealed in the person of Christ, embodied in Christ, and explained through the epistles. That is the God we serve. And that is so important because one day we're all going to stand before him. 
We're not going to stand before God as we would have liked him to be. We're going to stand before God as he is and as he revealed himself to be. And this is the God that we serve. And the problem is there's so many things out there that if we begin to think wrongly of God, skew him, and it brings pain in people's lives. If, if there's one thing in the world we're going to think seriously about, it should be God. If there's one thing in the world we need to think critically about, we need to take our time and look and say, Father, teach me. It is God and who he is. Because if we get that wrong, it skews so many other things. It's idolatry at worst, and it's discouragement at best. A.W. Tozer says idolatry is worshiping God as something that he is not. There's so many things out there, right? You have a health and wealth gospel that just talks about God being good and all. Is God good? Yes, but is that all he is, right? There's so many legalistic things out there that talk about God as being judgmental and God as being harsh. Yeah, look, God judges certain things, but is that all he does, right? Again, there, there are things that just run through the culture. You have uh, like the shack, the movie out there, or Jesus Calling. And one of the problems with some of these things is they skew the character of God. It isn't rounded. It isn't well. It isn't what the scripture puts in front of us. It's one thing lifted up above another. Uh, there was another guy who wanted to encapsulate God in fiction once, actually for a much harder audience than for adults. It was for kids. And that guy, his name is C.S. Lewis, wrote a book called The Chronicles of Narnia. Some of you know what that is. If you don't, go read it. It'll be good for you. But in that book, I love this one scene, Lucy is coming to meet Aslan, and she assumes he's a man. And she hears he's not a man. He's something more. He's a lion. Right? I told you it was for kids. And she's talking to beavers, which makes it even more obvious for kids, right? And Lucy says, well... When she hears that, she's a little nervous. Is he safe? And they tell her, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's certainly not safe, but he's good, and he's a king, I tell you. That does a much better job encapsulating who God is. Safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good, and he's a king, right? Who, who is the God that we see here? He's a king. We can't forget that. We can't forget who he is. We have to see him as he is revealed in scriptures. False ideas of him. People have false expectations that are let down. God, why didn't you do this? Why are you acting this way? How come you're not working this way? Or they have burdens in their lives. Or there's some type of legalism. Or there's some type of total just liberalism and sin. Where people just begin to sin so that God's grace can be poured out, right? All these things stem from a wrong idea of God, and wrong ideas of God cause many a disciple to turn back. We need to think correctly about him. Ananias thought wrongly about God. He forgot what he was doing and who he was coming to. We cannot make that same mistake. Now, look at verse 7 as his wife comes. It says it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. She didn't know. They didn't have Instagram or Facebook, right? It would have already been out. Everybody would have known at that point. She doesn't know. Three hours later, apparently, she was probably waiting. He's not coming back. What's happening here? Where is he? 
She goes to find out. She shows up. Peter answered to her, and he said, notice, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yea, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you would have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out. He has a prophetic utterance this time. Again, Peter is not the one killing her. Then she fell down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. So here she comes. You have to imagine this scene now. She shows up. She already knows something's wrong. Her husband's not there. Everybody's sitting there looking at her. Literally, the bag of money is probably sitting right where Ananias set it down by Peter. And just imagine this. She looks at Peter. Peter looks at her. Everybody knows something weird is going on. Peter points at the bag, and he says, tell me whether you actually sold the land for that much. Tell me that's not a setup, right? This is what you do with your kids. They come in the room. You're standing by the broken lamp. Tell me whether you know how this happened, right? Like, uh, and you have security cameras in your house. You already know, right? The whole, the whole point is she knows her conscience has to be killing her right now. She knows the game is up. God is giving her a chance to repent. It's not just him. She's a partaker, and she has a choice now. I can repent of my sin. I can say publicly that I was wrong. This is all a game. Or I can seek to hide it. I can lie about it. She decides that she's going to remain faithful to her husband and disloyal to God. Bad choice. Bad choice. Now, let me interject here for a second, because some ladies are like, this sermon finally got better. This was terrible until the worst Palm Sunday message ever, right? And you're looking at your husband like, chump, I don't have to listen to you anymore. I got to be loyal to God. That's not what I'm saying, okay? That's not what I'm saying here, all right? What I'm saying is this repentance, she should have had sincerity. That's the point. She shouldn't have... Uh, turn anywhere else but the God in this scene. And the key is, notice again what Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? The picture is a refusal to repent is tempting God. Don't tempt God to respond to your secret sin. Don't tempt him. Don't push him to act upon it. That's, that's the picture. Don't tempt him to respond. Either Ananias and Sapphira had to go, or the Holy Spirit had to go. Both of them couldn't exist. That sin had to be judged. Again, so important. God deals with sin in the church differently than sin in the world. Because the church knows the sin has already been judged in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't know that. The world doesn't know that their sins have been paid for. They need to hear that their sins have been paid for. The church, we already know our sins have been judged in Christ on the cross. We know what's happened. Therefore, we should judge them as Christ has judged them. Does that make sense? We need to say about our sin, we confess it, what Jesus has said about it in the cross, that it's worth more than we could ever pay. It's incredibly hard to fix, even for God. 
We don't treat it lightly. We don't call it something else. If Jesus had to pay for it on the cross, we judge sin. Sin is to be judged in the body of Christ differently than in the world. I don't look at somebody in the world and say, hey, man, you have a bad testimony. It's like, what are you talking about, right? Of course, you Hafner has a bad testimony. Of course he does. He's not a son or daughter of God. He's not redeemed. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He hasn't been forgiven. He doesn't know those things. Once we're part of the body of Christ, sin is judged differently. We are commanded to judge sin in our individual hearts and lives. When we see it in our lives, 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says this, If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. We're supposed to see anything in our hearts, any wicked desire, covetousness, lust, whatever it is, and if it's not of God, we see that as sin that is judged on the cross, and we call it what it is. This is sin. This is my lust. This is my pride. This is my envy. This needs to go. Forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, purge me. We need to judge that personally. We're commanded to judge sin between one another. We're commanded in the scripture to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. We're supposed to, if we're spiritual, seek to overcome those, or excuse me, help those who are overcome in sin. The wounds of a friend are faithful. We're never anywhere in Scripture called to cover sin, ignore sin, brush sin off, or partake in another person's sin. Not in a single place. In fact, I love this little staccato command here from Jesus in Luke 17. He says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. If you repent, forgive him. Right? That's what Jesus doesn't say. It might possibly be a good idea if sometimes when you had enough courage to say something about sin. He commands, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Both commands. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. In the church, we're commanded to judge sin as local fellowships. 1 Peter 4, 17 says the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. If it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Jesus says in Matthew, if you have something against your brother, you go to him alone, one-on-one. Imagine if we did that first. Not Facebook, not the internet, not our family. If you have something against your brother, you go to them alone, one-on-one. If they won't listen to you, you bring two or three witnesses. If they won't listen to them, then he says, if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. If he neglect to hear the church, if he refuses still to repent, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. That's what Jesus says. That's his command. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly. Not the world. A brother who walks disorderly. Not after the tradition which he received of us. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he might be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Jesus is very serious about the church. He paid for the church in his blood. He, this is not a joke to him. It's the wisdom of the eternal God played out on earth. He's very concerned 
about the local fellowship. He would say in 1 Corinthians 5, I'll read this to you. There was a man in the church there in Corinth who was living in sexual sin with his stepmom. They weren't doing anything about it. They maybe thought they were being very gracious and allowing this man to still be there. Paul says this, I wrote to you in the epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, for then you would need to go out of the world. But I have written unto you not to keep company if a man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one know not to eat, for what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? That's a rhetorical question. But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. His point is this. Church discipline is a reality. It's a reality in this church. We enact church discipline. Here's why church discipline happens. Because God didn't die so that his sons and daughters can enjoy the sin that he died for and remain distant from him. That's not why he died on the cross. He died so that we who were far off could come close, so that we who didn't have a relationship with him could have a relationship with him, so that we could know him, so that we could be washed and we could be cleansed. And that is there for every single one of us. But... Church discipline is an outward picture of an inward reality. The person is supposed to be put out of the fellowship. He tells them in Corinth, take that man and tell them he's not welcome in the fellowship so that he knows in his head, I'm distant from the fellowship on earth because I'm distant from fellowship with God. Listen to me, this is very important. Church discipline is a reality even if churches don't enact it. God doesn't want his sons and daughters sitting in a building thinking that they're cool with him because they showed up at a building. He wants them to recognize there's distance between us. Now that distance can be dealt with in simple repentance. It could be dealt with through the blood of Christ. We can walk in the light and have fellowship with him. There is nothing keeping any single one of us from intimate communion with Jesus Christ except a refusal to repent from known, willful, obvious sin, whether it's sins of the body or sins of disposition. Here is a sin of disposition. Sins of the body are obvious ones. But we can't assume that we're going to live in sin and be close to God. And what happens is, this is the reason there's so much weakness and unreality and distance in people's relationship with God. They show up at church and the only thing that's real is kind of the unreality of the whole thing. We just sit there in a dreamy stupor, hoping that the guy tells us a joke about his kids or maybe a dog or a cat because that'll wake us up a little bit. And if we ended up with good feelings and walk out, something will kind of all right happened. We need reality between us and God. And people are like, oh, I feel distant from God. Well, of course you do. Because God's like, I want to talk about your adultery. And we're like, well, I want to talk about my new job. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm not going to talk about that. And we're, and we're like, well, I'm not going to talk about this. And then we're wondering why there's this weird spiritual elephant in the room, Right. Why is there distance between me and God? Why can't I hear from him? Why don't I feel close to him? Why is there something going on here? Because we need to repent. 
And when a church sees this happening, it is his command in the church to cause that person to be put out of the fellowship so that they recognize that there's distance between them and him. Listen, you can fake out men, but who are you dealing with here? Did you come to worship God or Pastor Joe? If you came to worship God, you need reality. You need reality. You can be close to him. He has made that possible. But sin in the church is different than sin in the world, and it will keep you distant from him. And finally, if we don't judge sin ourselves, stop being judged between one another or the fellowship, God will step in and deal with sin. He says to the church in Corinth, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. He says in 1 John chapter 5, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. The idea is don't inquire about it. We don't look at somebody that dies and say, I wonder if they died because there was sin in their life. The Bible's like, that's not up to you. Don't think about it. But God's a king. Don't tempt him to step in and deal with things. Don't, don't come day after day after day and ignore sin in your life. Don't come to a church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, whether it's this church or any church, it's a real church, and, and tempt God to deal with things. Or year after year after year, refusing to repent, tempting God and his grace. Don't do that. That's a mistake. He puts this here in the beginning of church history to show us that he is serious about these things. Sin in the body hurts all of us. It hurts all of us. Does it make you fear? I think it made them fear. I, I think that it was something that they were pretty surprised about. It says twice that they feared. Although I will say this, for the Christian, there's a lot of things that we should fear more than death. Here's an, another one of those non-memory verses. Jesus says in Luke, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more power that they can do. But I will forewarn you who you shall fear. Fear him which after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's what Jesus says. Right, the Christian should fear wounding Jesus Christ, their Savior, more than they fear any physical death. Right? Christians aren't supposed to fear physical death. Paul said, if they kill me, it's far better. I'll go to be with him. Right? And they're like, oh, don't kill him, he likes it. What do we do with this guy? Right? Just lock him up, I guess. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down to the golden idol. What do they say? We're not going to bow down. Our God can save us. But if not, we still won't serve your God. Let it be known to you, O king. We don't worship your gods. If death is the price, death is the price. We, we should fear distance from him more than we fear anything else. More than any consequence for repentance. More than any humility we'll have to walk through. More than physical death itself. We need to come close to him. This fear, notice verse 11, great fear came upon all the church. Notice, the church. And upon as many as heard these things. Notice, 
twice in verses 5 and verse 11. It says, fear came on all those who heard these things. It wasn't just the people who saw it. It was the people who heard about these things. God put this in the beginning of church history so that all through the ages his church should remember who they're dealing with, that he's God, he's good, and he's a king. Who it is they're dealing with, and that they shouldn't tempt him. Don't tempt him with sin. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. You're not dealing with men. You're dealing with God. He's not here to play games. He's not fooling around. This relationship that he purchased is the most costly thing in the universe. It means more to him than we could ever possibly imagine. And he has done everything he could possibly do to make that a reality that we could come to him, no matter what the sin is. And there should be a healthy fear in that. Listen, it's not all there is, but it's a reality. I have a good dad. But I'll tell you what, when I was little and I was sinning, I didn't think in my head, this will probably make my dad upset. I shouldn't do this. You know what I thought? If I break that, he will kill me. <laughs> right? It was fear that kept me in the beginning. Fear is... Proverbs tells us, the beginning of knowledge. It's not the end of knowledge, right? You grow up, and your relationship becomes deeper. And you say, I don't want to hurt this person. You're not afraid they're going to kill you anymore. They might be able to kill you, but that's not what you're afraid of, right? It's the beginning. And this is a reality when we come to God. We remember. It's good for us. It's clean, the Bible says, who we're dealing with. We're dealing with God. This isn't some man. This isn't some joke that we're doing. It's good for every single one of us. We need to remember what we're doing here. And this church, what happens is they grow. They multiply. You would think you're like, oh, this type of God scares me. Well, why did everybody join the church? This is so fun. Like in, in, in the New Testament, you would, think that you would think the last thing God would ever have to tell the church is you're going to have to put somebody out. You're going to have to tell somebody they can't be a part of this poor, sickly group that's being murdered, right? <laughs> this group all over the world that's getting killed for just getting together and singing praise songs and looking at the Word of God. You're going to have to tell people not to be a part of it. You, you would think people wouldn't care about this. They'd be like, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You're getting killed and thrown to lions and stoned and murdered and threatened. Why does he have to say that? Because there's a reality, a greater reality there because of the love of God and the forgiveness of sins and what is offered here. This church is blessed and it's blessed not because it's a culturally understanding and accepting church, but because it's pure and has the Holy Spirit. Because there's a reality of God there. God doesn't come to fill seats. He fills hearts. And a church service is big when Jesus Christ has space to fill it up. Not when there's 20,000 people there. It's big when there's reality. And it could be bigger with 20 people than 20,000. For us, we have to look at this and say, Lord, do I hear these things? Is this a reality for me? Who am I dealing with? What do I come here for? Am I testing your spirit? Repent today. 
If that's you, repent today. Proverbs says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father the son in whom he delights. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes their sin shall have mercy. God cries out to us because he wants reality. He says, Come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. You'll be my sons and daughters, and I will be to you a father. That's his call. And look, I don't have a clue how to end this. I actually thought about it a lot, and I was like, I don't know what to do. Here's what I think. You know what to do. You have a relationship with God. If you're his sheep, you hear his voice. That's what he promises. If you need to repent, you need to repent. You need to repent before God. You probably have to repent before a bunch of men, too. You might need to repent before your wife or your family or your kids. You might need to repent before the church. God will tell you what to do. But you need reality with him. Don't play games. Who, who are you coming to deal with? Another man? It's not Christianity. God, your Savior, the one who shed his blood for those sins? Then you have someone who loves you, wants to be your father, who wants to cleanse you and create in you a clean heart, as David said. Don't let anything stop you from that. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know every heart and every life that's here. You know everything that's going on in every heart and every mind. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would draw us to yourself. I pray that you would purify us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that Satan wouldn't have a foothold in anyone's life here. Say, Lord, I pray you wouldn't have a place, as Peter said, in anyone's heart pray, Lord, in your blood that you would wash us, that you would cleanse us, that you would allow us to walk with that gift of a clean conscience in you, Lord. Lord, you know we don't do that in our own works. You know we don't do that in our own strength. You say that we can walk in the light and have fellowship with you and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we thank you for that, Lord. So we bring ourselves to you. We pray, Lord, have your way in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.